Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about the ongoing contract negotiations between the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the AMPTP. If you're in the audience for this podcast, you're most likely aware that these negotiations are not going well, and there's talk of a strike. With today's conversation, we're hoping to add some context. But first, let me introduce my guests, all of whom are returning to the show. Mike Loomer, you're currently serving on the executive board of IA Local 44, which represents props, set decoration, construction, and special effects. You're a 25-year film veteran, and you've been a union member for 20. Welcome back to Below the Line. Thanks, kid. Happy to be here. Next, David Tutman. You joined the National Association of Broadcast Employees and Technicians, or NABIT, in 1987. In 1990, NABIT Local 15 merged with IA Local 600, which covers all of the camera crafts, and you've been a member ever since. Added up, you've worked in the industry for 39 years, and you've been a union member for almost 35. Welcome. Hi, Skid. Good to see you. In our final chair, Michael Taylor, you also joined NABIT earlier in your career for set lighting. When that local merged with its IA equivalent, Local 728, you continued as an active member up until your retirement in 2017. Of your 40 years in the biz, you were a union member for 36. You also started a blog, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Confessions of a Hollywood Juicer, in 2007, and you're still publishing today. Welcome back. Good to see you, Skid. A quick disclaimer before we start. Any opinions presented today are our own and are not intended to represent the membership or any organization as a whole. So, gentlemen, let's start by adding some context overall uh, and talk about the International Alliance of Television and Stage Employees. Total membership is about 150,000. And the basic agreement, which ended at, at July 31st of this year, it covers 13 West Coast locals with about 60,000 members. There's also an area standards agreement that ended on July 31st, and that covers an additional 23 locals that are outside of LA that represent many of the same types of crafts. Is there more context as far as IA that we should share for people to sort of understand what IAT represents? Well, just in terms of my local, Local 600 skid, Local 600 is a national, international guild actually, and uh, has an East Coast, Central and West Coast uh, contingent. Thanks, Ted, for clarifying on that. I think it's also important to note that the IOTC does not just represent film and television workers. It also represents uh, stagehands and uh, lighting technicians in live and theater events as well. Appreciate that context as well, as far as the larger organization overall. What I'd like to do is go around the table and have each of you talk about when you joined the union, what things were like and what prompted you to become a member. Loomer, why don't you start us off? I joined the union in uh, August of 2001. And it was a uh, pivotal role in my career where I really felt that I had, had worked my way up from being an amateur professional filmmaker to being a real professional filmmaker. Um, I felt like I had reached a, a, a point in my career where I could, could really call myself a pro. And I positioned myself with, uh, with other like-minded professionals who really took this as a career and as, uh, as the art form that that we all know it is and to be professionals at it the best of the best and i believe that that we really do encompass that mentality that we are the best at what we do it was an amazing time to know that that i had succeeded in gaining the uh, the level of 
commitment to the projects, to myself and to our craft that uh, I wouldn't have otherwise gained working in the non-union world. Michael Taylor, let's go back to your start. <laughs> you probably the earliest join of the people we have on the call today. Talk to me about what the thoughts were then and when you first became a union member. Well, I first tried to get into 728 Satellite Union when I, about a year into my experience in LA, I went to LA in 77. There was a, a fat guy wearing a wife beater, uh, sitting at a desk, smoking a cigar, and they just laughed me right out of the office. I mean, they were very unfriendly towards new members back then. So I, I said, well, fuck it. I work non-union. And then uh, Nabet Grip said, hey, why don't you join Nabet? And he, he put in a call for me. So I you know, paid the 500 bucks, took the test, and was in Nabet. And Nabet was great. I worked three days, and I was on the health plan. They had a pension plan. Uh, we we're doing commercials, making good money, whereas before I'd been working non-union features, getting my ass kicked for very little money. So the union world suddenly looked very good to me. And Nabet was great for, oh, that was 81 when I got in for 10, 12 years. And then the merger happened. Things tapered off. The IA started coming into doing commercials. They merged. I still wasn't real happy with the IA because they basically told me to fuck off. But it was the only, uh, only circus in town. And it was a little rough early on because 728 was very unfriendly. Although technically we were in the union, they said, well, you're not in the roster, so you can't work, but you got to pay dues anyway. So for three years, I was a very angry juicer, best boy, gaffer. But finally, I was, did a show that turned. So I got my days and uh, became a member and things got much better after that. The union was good. I've, I've calmed down about that now. <laughs> <laughs> They're my friend, not my enemy you now. <laughs> Well, Tut, you similarly started with Nabit. Uh, talk to me about those early years for you. Well, for me, I, I did about five years of production assistant work, and um, I had goals to learn filmmaking as a whole. And um, it struck me as I got to know things within commercials, particularly that um, I was uh, clearly disposed towards working with cameras. And I liked the idea of getting out of production and out of those uh just mindless hours, in all honesty, even for like second ADs and second second ADs, first ones in, last ones out, 19 hours a day sometimes for a second second AD. It's horrifying to me. So I felt camera was the route. I could have discussions immediately with cinematographers every day about exposure, the days of film, and about you know all sorts of technique. And uh, my goal was to become a, at least a witness to the conversations that helped decide what made a movie. I too, uh, I first applied to the IATSE. I really, I had you know, some non-union experience as a camera assistant, but they, uh, they said to me that I, I wasn't uh, ready for the IA and that even NABIT experience would do. I had worked on plenty of NABIT jobs, knew the crews well, and uh, just jumped at it, took my tests. Uh, you got into NABIT because you passed your tests, not because you knew somebody or were related to somebody. And um, I proceeded to make my career as a camera assistant. And I have to say that um, I always wanted to join the union because I, I wanted to work under a structure where parties understood the rules and that we were protected and we could eat regularly. And there was a number of hours off between days. These are the sacred issues to me. It's not even about pay. It's about workplace safety and health of workers. And that's really what we're talking about in the, in the negotiations we're talking about today. And those are the main reasons I got in the union, to be honest, other than personal growth. Let's jump our conversation forward to talk about the negotiations that are underway. And who wants to step up and provide a little bit of history about the negotiations between IATSE and the AMPTP? So in the past, 
uh, our negotiations as a uh, as a bargaining unit consisted of members from each of the locals that then work with the international to ultimately bargain as a unit. But uh, something that has happened in the past is that all of the locals came forward with craft-specific negotiations that specifically affected our locals. And we would try to come to some sort of compromise on those. In history, there have not been a lot of motions on those other than things that uh, just kind of affect paperwork or things that could never cost the employers any money. This time around, the IA decided to suspend craft-specific negotiations and just bargain as a whole. What that did is allowed the IA to not section out specific crafts from the negotiation and keep them separated or divide us separately. So working as a whole, uh, we came to the table uh, in May with proposals. And what we were hearing is that AMPTP really didn't want to have any discussions about quality of life. They wanted to just keep the status quo and just discuss the pay increase that generally comes at 3% to the first year, 2% and 2% the following two years of the contract or thereabouts. That seemed to be about the only thing they wanted to negotiate. And that's not what our membership wanted. We wanted to talk about the importance of life. And so there are these three-year agreements, but as we mentioned at the beginning, there are different agreements that cover different locals. There are also side agreements that can go on between different organizations and such with IATSE, but all of these are generally concerned about the same issues, which is on the table this year, and that, as you mentioned, Loomer, quality of life. Yes. So let's talk more about where the focus is now and what specific issues are holding up the negotiations. Last weekend, Local 600 had a very large Zoom meeting with uh, well over a thousand people attending for six plus hours. What seems to me the major points that are being made are that new media is not new media anymore. Streaming is here. It's established as a part of the entertainment industry. It's not an experiment anymore. It's making a lot of money, a lot of money for those streaming studios. Uh, The other issues, are health and safety issues such as adequate rest periods, meal breaks, and penalties if people don't get to eat regularly and have a have a moment to themselves to make a phone call and to take a rest. Shorter days, which really come down to better and truthful scheduling. I cannot tell you how many years of prep I've been in where I've witnessed assistant directors and myself tell people this is a 14-hour day, and they just look as and say, well, shave 15 minutes or half an hour off of each thing, it becomes a 12-hour day. But they don't change what's being done. They just want it labeled so that it passes muster with their higher-ups. There's also a big dispute about pension qualifications, that the studios want more than double the number of hours per year it takes to get a year of pension. Yeah, we had a big meeting in 728. I think they, they were coming initially with like a 1%, 2% you know, increase in pay. I mean, about half what we used to get. They kind of agreed on a few little things, but on the big things, they didn't want to talk about the weekend work and, and having a weekend. And for the whole issue of Fridays and all that, as Matt Loeb put it, uh, it's time to command their attention, the MPT. And I think it's a good point that Loomer made that the IA locals, I mean, they're not negotiated as individuals this time because the AMPTP had never has. What Loeb told us was that the Producers Association, they have to have unanimous consent to reach an, an agreement with us. Whereas with us, it's like 50% plus one once you get down to it. So they've been able to divide and conquer every single time. 
And now if we're finally united, and especially East and West Coast, and the Southeast guys are with us, Canada maybe, maybe we can finally stand up to them. Because if we don't do it now, when? They'll set a new baseline with these concessions, and they'll screw us even more three years from now, you know? Every contract I've witnessed negotiated has been worse than the one before. There's a point where how much is enough? Talk to me about the negotiation history around new media. I know there are lower rates for new media in the three-year contract that just expired. Well, it's been a lot longer than the last contract. It's been probably uh, 15 years, 12 or 15 years at this point. But when new media first started, it was funnier dive videos. It was the guys that made, uh, you know, the landlord were trying to figure out how to get some payment on that. It started out legitimately. We don't know how to revenue stream this stuff. And as we've seen in the last 12 years, streaming is where it's at. TV is dying. Theatrical releases is dying for a lot of options. So streaming is the main go-to. Now, how that affects us is in residuals, not only us, the IA, but us uh, actors, because we get our residuals from secondary markets. So when a movie goes to the theater and it plays there, we don't get any residuals off that. It's not until it gets sold into DVD or onto a secondary streaming platform or secondary markets, Europe, Asia, where we finally start seeing the contributions to our pension and healthcare, and actors get theirs in uh, the form of cash payment. So that is a, a big issue for us because the streamers now don't have secondary market. It goes and lives in perpetuity on Netflix or on Disney Plus or Prime. So the fact that we are getting a slightly larger upfront payment as a compensation to our, our pension and health plans does not give us a fair portion of the profits that that product is making. And what about these issues of onset workplace safety? Wow. <laughs> um, I, I must say, I'm a, I'm a lucky fellow in that, uh, I, well, I've always felt I've had union protection when it came to dangerous assignments, to be honest. Um, there was a moment when I was a camera assistant where squibs were going to go off on a hood of a car and I was pulling focus. We didn't have remotes back in the old days. And uh, I'm right next to the lens and squibs are going off two feet from my face. So wow. I had asked for goggles and they were coming, but they hadn't gotten there yet. And they call roll. And I said, we can't roll yet. I don't have my goggles. And they said, we've got to roll. We got, it, was, it was a nightmare night. There were all sorts of things that happened on this particular shoot. I was day playing. And I looked and said, no goggles, no shot. And they said, we're going. And I pulled the plug out of the camera. I said, we're, we're not going till the goggles get here. The lens has protection. My eyes get protection. And they were really mad at me. The cinematographer on that job actually took me aside at the end of the day to chastise me for that. And I screamed at him in the camera truck. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't coming back, needless to say. But, um, but that, that, was just, that was just one example on a crazy night of stunts where my fellow operator and focus puller almost got killed because they changed the speed of a driving car without telling the grips and camera department what was happening. You know, crazy stuff. But fortunately, that didn't happen very often. As a cinematographer now, I feel it's one of my most important jobs is to make sure my crew goes home okay. Todd, even then, when you were obviously had some disagreement, even within your own team, you still felt that the union was very clear that you were in the right to make that well, decision on set. I said, my contract says I can decline any dangerous assignment, and I decline this one until my goggles are here. You know, But it's important to have that contract. 
And it seems to me that, especially now that we've seen um, the studio so willing to jump into COVID with 20% more money, 25% more money is what I hear, uh, in order to get their product done in the name of health and safety, they clearly have money for health and safety. Yeah, it's never been more evident that the studios have money and are willing to spend it. They're just not willing to spend it on those of us that are making their products. I will, uh, I'll follow up with what Tut said is that I have often felt very protected by my union. I've been on jobs where we've been on rooftops with no lights and no safety line around the top. And I've called my union and had a rep there within just 45 minutes. Fortunately, we were close to our hall and they pulled every single member off of my crew off of that roof. But I've also seen some pretty gnarly accidents. I was there when a, a stunt woman was almost killed on a show. And uh, the next day, we got a uh, we had a crew meeting to discuss the accident, and uh, the, our crew had attempted to uh, to take up a collection for her family because we knew that that she was the primary breadwinner and her husband was a stay at home dad. the uh, The producer said, "No, no, no, you don't do that. We'll take care of that." And needless to say, they didn't, and we did. Wow. And uh, it was uh, you know it was traumatic to witness the accident, and then also to witness the callousness that came from from the producers on that because they they didn't want us to take up a collection and the only reason that we could figure out is that they wanted to mitigate any sort of liability or their responsibility for the accident and then i saw another stunt where a car was on fire traveling down a hill in silver lake backwards it was supposed to deflect off cars on both sides of the road and then turn into a a, a telephone pole and the uh the stunt driver had rehearsed several times and just was was not getting it and you've all heard it on the radio. Got to go. Got to go. Sun's coming up. Got to go. We got to get it. Let's go. Until they finally bullied the stunt performer into doing the shot. It did not go well. And I watched, you know, an Alexa get yard sailed right onto a Hollywood Boulevard when that car hit that camera and just sent it flying. And the only thing that stopped the operator from going with it was a very keen dolly grip who grabbed him by the waistband and the back of his shirt and chucked him like a football out of the way and then jumped clear himself. That was the only wow. thing. Those are the ones that stand out. That's not just the everyday, gotta go, let's do it. Why, are, why is this taking so long? Rush, rush, rush. When the thing that we're rushing through is doing it safely. It's every day. Are there aspects of these negotiations, the ones that are currently on the table, that directly affect the safety issues that uh, we've brought up as examples where obviously safety protocols weren't followed properly? Is that an aspect of where there's disagreement about how to manage those? I can't say that there is anything that would address those specifically. Those accidents were already had already been talked about how to operate safely. They just weren't. I think the major concern that us as workers have with the contract negotiation right now is our rest periods and our sleep and our turnaround. Because right now, the producers, the AMPTP can just buy their way out of everything. And we know they have the money to do it, but you can only buy time. You can't buy sleep. And our members need the rest. When the answer is just, uh, well, we'll just pay you to come in early or we'll just buy out your lunch so you don't get that opportunity to eat and or take a nap at lunch. That's what affects our members. And then not being able to see your family, man. We work late. We get home. Our kids, our family are already in bed. And then they go to school and then we go to work right behind them. We never see them. And as it pushes farther and farther and farther into Friday work, 
Now we get home at seven o'clock in the morning on Saturday and we have to make that decision. Are we going to try and see our kids and play for a little while and just continue the cycle of exhaustion? Or are we going to sleep our Saturday away and lose another day with our families? And that's the decision that we have to make. Well, to that point, Loomer, certainly those issues of exhaustion do contribute to general when safety fails on set. It's almost always because people just their attention started to slip, never mind the sort of pushing through and, and that. And so I see how they're tied together with that. Let's talk a little about these Fridays for folks who may not be aware. Uh, the call on Friday is so late that you end up not going home until uh, well into Saturday morning before your long day is even over, as you said, and impacting the weekend. That's been going on for a long time. I remember back in the day of going to shoot uh, overnight and then getting caught in rush hour traffic on my way back home, which just even adds to those concerns about being on the road. Has that been getting worse? Or again, it's just a matter of wanting to have protections there that have never been there between IATSE and the producers. It's getting remarkably worse to the point where we don't just have Fridays anymore. We have Thur Fries. And that's where you're, you're doing the exact same thing you're doing on a Friday, but you're starting it on a Thursday. So by the time you're going home on Saturday, after your Thur Fry and your Friday, it's noon, noon on Saturday. And you've tented something to uh, yeah. to shoot Saturday morning. It's ridiculous. That's that's one of the things that drives me crazy. The notion that crews are being uh, told to work on day interior scenes on a Friday night. I mean, I understand we're in a business that needs nights. We do tell stories that happen after dark, and this is part of what we accept as storytellers and as part of making movies, night scenes do happen, but you can schedule four hours of nights at a time or five hours of nights at a time and do it over several days. To me, a lot of the questions become about courage and scheduling. And there are producers, I have become more selective about the producers I want to work with because there are producers as individuals who will say, I'm not going to work the crew till Saturday at six in the morning. And that's very important. There are choices that can be made as to how to distribute work and keep it on a human level. Yeah, and I think the point that uh, Loomer was making about the cumulative fatigue, you know, when you work that kind of a schedule, uh, the decisions you're making those last few hours, if, you know, you deal with gravity, we deal with gravity, we deal with electricity, uh, a lot of things that really hurt if they go wrong. And that's where it really does become a safety issue. In addition to the fact that, you know, recent medical reports have come out pointing out to just how dangerous in terms of your overall health and your life expectancy and everything else, working excessively long hours will create. It's dangerous. It is a health and safety issue. In addition to the family issues that you guys are talking about, which are very real. Let's talk about the strike. Loomer, why don't you start us out by talking about the process uh, over the next week or so? All right, Skid. So the International has authorized a strike authorization vote. Earlier this week, our digital company that will be doing the voting system sent out emails to all of our members on Monday and Wednesday, which were test, uh, uh, test emails to make sure that the email addresses were right and that the information wasn't going directly to spam or junk mail folders. Then the ballots will come out tomorrow on Friday. We have until uh, Sunday at 8.59 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to get that ballot returned with a strong yes vote. We should know the results on Monday, and that will give our bargaining unit the ammunition they need to go back 
and let the producers know that we strongly support their actions and that our membership is standing strong on turnaround and quality of life. And hopefully the producers will see that that is the truth and that they will help facilitate that in our new contract. If the membership does vote to authorize the strike, does that mean that a strike is imminent? How does that work into next steps? Absolutely not. Authorizing a strike gives our negotiating team one more piece of ammunition to go to battle with. It gives us the opportunity to go into the producers and say, listen, we all stand behind this decision and we will stand strong for quality of life. So it just allows for better negotiation, knowing that if those negotiations fall apart, our next step as a labor organization could be to strike. One of the things my local leadership has stressed is, and who wants a strike? We want, we want a contract and we want a fair contract. We want a contract that protects our members. That's what we're looking for. We're not looking to strike. We're looking to tell these guys in the studios that we are serious and that this is life and death stuff. Mike Gaffer on my last job told me that he's had two car crashes in the past five years. And before that, it had a couple of other accidents where he hadn't fallen asleep. So that's four car crashes, two where he fell asleep at the wheel. That's what we're talking about here. Well, to your point, everyone would like to avoid a strike because it's the people's livelihood, putting that at risk. But let's talk about that larger impact of a strike overall, both for what work's going to get done and then uh, what the impact on membership's going to be. Well, some shows will continue. Apparently, HBO shows, uh, maybe Stars, maybe some others, they're on a sidebar deal, and apparently their contracts doesn't run out when ours did. And that is something that the, uh, the IA is addressing is how do we safely get our members to work on shows that are legitimately contractually obligated to work on. Uh, that doesn't just include HBO, uh, Showtime, and Stars projects, which have a separate contract, but also the AICP commercial contract will continue. And then individual companies that are not necessarily AMPT members that have signed a contract with the IA uh, specifically for work will continue. Now, something that has come up is that HBO Max shows are separate from HBO shows. And right now there are very few HBO specific shows. They almost entirely HBO Max shows. So the number of products that are going to be produced during this is quite low, quite low. But we will figure out a way to get our members onto those shows without the stigma of scab status or the harassment that would come with that. If there are some shows getting done, on some ways that puts more pressure on other shows to end the strike as quickly as possible, presuming one is taking place. I think we saw that during COVID where there was this rush. There's so much demand for product. The rush and the money they were willing to spend, to, as you brought up, is additional pressure to get everyone back and running again. Whether some small number of shows are working or not, everyone's going to want the strike to end as soon as possible because there is that appetite for content right now. It feels like uh, the streaming services particularly are very, very much fighting for every viewer's entertainment dollar. And when they start falling short of content, the pressure is going to be on in a different way than potentially it has been in the past. I know that there are shows that worked seventh and eighth days last weekend just to try and cram as much product into the can as possible before any sort of uh, labor action takes place. Now, what do you guys think about comparisons between the potential to strike we're talking about now and the last major Hollywood work stoppage, which I believe was the writer's strike in 2007? 
certainly the general impression in Hollywood was that it was a battle. It was a pyrrhic victory. You know, nobody won. They all basically took a beating. But Michael, I'll go back to your remarks earlier from our conversation, where you seem to suggest that there was something different about this strike and maybe where the IATSE membership is today that might lead to actual change. Can you sort of extrapolate on those thoughts? Well, just that, as the others were saying, uh, concessions have been made every three years. I mean, there was, you know, like I said, the night premium went away, the double-double went away, all these regulations, they were protections. It wasn't, all those big overtime things weren't to make money for the crew. It was as a hammer or firewall to make the producers think twice or three times before they abuse them. So when, when there was a provision to, after 12 hours on Friday and you put it in the midnight, you went to double-double time. Well, producers had to really think twice before they start paying at four times the hourly rate for the entire crew. Nine times out of 10, they'd say, no, it's a wrap because we, we no longer have those protections, the overtime protections that we used to have. That's why the crews are being so abused now and having to work extremely long hours and deep into Saturday morning. One of the differences I'm seeing right now is with this discussion of the authorization to strike, uh, we have gotten strong support from other unions and guilds, the Teamsters, the DGA, the Writers Guild, SAG and AFTRA have all come out in support of the strike authorization vote. I think there's a recognition by the community as a whole that there has to be some systemic change. The other thing I think that makes a difference this time is um, we all have gotten much sharper as, a, as communities in the use of social media, because especially all the news outlets, the major news outlets are basically owned by these huge corporations that own the studios. It's going to be very hard for us to see a lot of stories on the network news and you know major cable news networks about our situation. But we have the means via social media to get our message out in a, in a very effective way this time that really hasn't, we haven't seen that before. I think you're absolutely right. I saw a news story this morning that only referenced the AMPTP's uh, news release and didn't even acknowledge the IATSE's uh, stand on the issues. Well, we spoke about the other guilds and unions, DGA, Teamster, SAG-AFTRA, expressing support. What can individuals, what can they do to support the efforts of IATSE at this critical time? First and foremost, if you are a shareholder at any of the companies that we negotiate with that are members of the AMPTP, reach out to, uh, to stockholder resources and let them know that you support the artists that make the product that, that they sell. If they hear from their shareholders that that's important, that could be something that, uh, that makes an impact because the shareholders realize the value of our work and that killing us off one at a time in 4 a.m. car accidents is not the, uh, the greatest way to uh, maintain a workforce. We just saw Nabisco workers were striking and uh, there was a pretty effective boycott of Nabisco products. That really led to uh, Nabisco giving up on their very unreasonable demands of workers. I wonder if viewers would give up their subscriptions if it were presented to them someday, if this heats up, uh, that they are doing the right thing for their community and for workers as a whole. I mean, we're in a place where diminishing union membership has created a diminishing middle class in this country. And do we try to hit hard with the fact that this is kind of one of those fights, which is not just for us within the union, but is for workers as a whole and trying to increase 
the awareness of the benefits of union membership. The, the producers are seeing the push on that. I've noticed that I've been receiving a lot of direct marketing from HBO Max to buy a year subscription now at a reduced rate rather than trying to pay monthly because I, I think they feel the pressure of losing uh, um, subscribers as the strike looms. But that does seem to be an area where the actual loss of product is what's going to hurt them most, even with their subscribers. And again, we hope not to get there, but that they can project that if IATSE goes on strike, you are going to have this, not tomorrow or not next month, but you are going to have this empty portion coming down the line that is definitely going to hurt what they're selling. You know, getting support from civilians would be great, but I think what really is going to make a difference is hitting them in the pocketbook. That's the only thing. I mean, I, a good friend of mine, Gaffer, a guy I've known since college years, is he's still working. And his brother was an entertainment lawyer for a while. And he knows a lot of those people in the AMPTP. And he said, basically, they're just ruthless bastards. I mean, they don't care about our quality of life. That doesn't enter into their equation at all. The money does. So if we hit them where it hurts, they will pay attention and they'll respond. Uh, additional support is always welcome. That would be great. But I think the bottom line is we got to hurt them if it comes to that. And I think that um, going back to your original question of, of what can people do to help us, and I think that the major group of people that could help impact this strike are our friends in the Actors Guild. We're seeing now on the IA Stories Instagram page how many actors had no idea what we're doing, what our hours are, and how that is affecting us because they are treated substantially differently. And this is eye-opening for them. And if it has opened their eyes enough for them to help us and take a stand, not only for us, but also for them, that would be optimal. And particularly those actors that are producers as well. Because I think that it's, it's important to make a distinction between the producer that is in the cast chair at Video Village and the quote unquote producer in the Black Tower that is getting a producer credit for nothing more than just being an accountant or a lawyer at a movie studio. We are not negotiating with the producer in the chair. We are negotiating with lawyers that represent lawyers that represent paper pushers in major corporations. <laughs> and that is, uh, you know, that is the problem is that the people that we negotiate with have never worked a 17-hour day in Agua Dulce in August, you know, trying to get 15 pages done on what should be a seven-page day. And they've never experienced that. So they have no frame of reference when we're talking about need and break. They just don't know. The producer in the chair does. The producer we're negotiating with does not. That's the thing. We've all worked with producers, UPMs, line producers, the experienced producers who know what we do and know what it takes to do what we do. And they support us. I mean, they want us to get a reasonable deal. They, they don't want to work these terrible hours, but there are too many producers, as Limer was pointing out nowadays, who don't really know what we do. Uh, like I said, even some of the actors don't know what we do because they come on stage after all the work is done for their brief moment on camera, and then they're gone. And in those other periods where they're not there, that's when all the work goes on. And then when they get sent home after their 12 hours, or however long it's been, to their 12-hour turnaround, we keep working. Well, gentlemen, this is obviously a developing story. Uh, we will see how things go next week with the strike authorization vote. Thank you very much for coming on the show today and adding this additional context. Really uh, appreciate it from all of you. Just, I, I was thinking about this earlier. It's one of the wonderful ironies of this episode of Below the Line is the title of the podcast, because that notion of below the line versus above the line, 
why is there a line? <laughs> We're all supposed to be there for the same purpose. Why are we below the line? Why are they above the line? There's no doubt a difference in the philosophy behind how I'm treated. So why is there that phraseology and why is there that difference? We're supposed to all be there for the same purpose, which is making movies, but also making a living and taking care of our families. We appreciate you giving us a platform to discuss uh, what is important for our membership and what is important for our lives. And uh, we, again, thank you for uh, giving us this. These are the issues we want to tackle here below the line. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. Thank you. Season nine rolls on. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, belowtheline.biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos of the behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, thanks for sticking around, and I hope you're enjoying the season. Tell your friends. We'll be back again next week. Hey, Skit, I wanted to thank you for two things. Number one, thanks for linking everything on IMDb, man. That's rad. And then the second thing I want to thank you for is one of your very first episodes was the uh, the PA boot camp. And I have a friend from uh, from high school whose daughter is passionate. She wants to come out here and be an editor. So I uh, I just signed her up for PA boot camp. I just paid for <laughs> Loomer, I'm curious to what you were paying for PA boot camp because I feel like I ought to be able to ask some kind of commission on that. Uh, I got the email. I sent them a, a note saying, I want to do this. How do I do it? And they sent me an email back. So.